Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. The Athletic. The Phil Hay Show. Hello and welcome to the show. The Phil Hayes Show is brought to you by The Athletic along with The Square Ball. I'm Dan Moylan. Michael Normanton's with me from The Square Ball. Hello. And here is Phil Hay from The Athletic. Hello. You can subscribe to The Athletic. Now read everything that Phil has written. So much more from like the Premier League, the whole world of sport as well. 33% off the full price of a sub at the moment at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. Why should people read it, Phil? Uh, this week, we've got some reflections on Watford, obviously, uh, and Bielsa's handling of the week running up to the game, which was slightly different to what you normally get from him and very much worked, I felt. A big look as well at Junior Filippo, who we spoke about on the pod last week uh, and who is, you know, a couple of months now into his time at Leeds, uh, the left-back chosen to replace Alioski and some pretty in-depth analysis of how it's going for him so far. We also have a big mailbag at the back end of the week, which is all of your questions answered. More questions on the way in this one as well, which you can check out on YouTube. Football first then. We've won a game, which is good news. The world feels a lot more settled again, Leeds United world. I think everybody felt this was coming. We It wasn't the big scoreline that we predicted, but it was an overwhelming win. Um, it was wiping the floor with Watford without scoring lots of goals. And I touched on this in the previous podcast, the fact that with Bielsa, he was... Very happy to admit that they were bottom three. They hadn't won a game. They didn't have enough points. They they should have been better in terms of results. But also that he was pretty satisfied with the way they were playing. He wasn't seeing fundamental problems with the performances. And Ilan Mesley had um, tweeted after the West Ham game saying it's coming. I got the same sense from Bielsa that it was around the corner. In a lot of ways, it was the perfect game because Watford were, were not up to much and obviously sat their head coach the following morning which some might say was pretty ruthless. Others might say was potentially justified, given what we saw of them, which was was not very much. But I, I do think it was one of those days that you often see from Leeds where the way they play does make the opposition look poorer. It felt like there was a chasm there between the two sides on Saturday. Almost a little, like going back to the Championship, both when it comes to the atmosphere from the away end in comparison to the West Ham game and, and the Everton game, which you know, felt like proper, proper Premier League fixtures. But also in, in the football. And the key for Watford was going to be making the most of transitional play and turnover ball. And they, they were going to sit deep. They were going to let Leeds have a, a lot of possession. But they needed to be absolutely clinical when they were breaking out. And they were they were woeful in that respect. They didn't the, the touch was off. The passing was off. They created next to nothing. They didn't cause much of a threat at all. And, and the only reason that it was on edge in the last 10 minutes was because it was 1-0. And suddenly, as was inevitable, really, everybody started to get a little bit tight. But I think whereas it felt as if Antonio's winner was coming for West Ham, I never got that sense with Watford at all. Saar was very quiet. Um, it'd be worth us talking about Furpool because I thought he had a very good game against him. He was the, the player who was most likely to be to be the threat. Injuries disrupted them as well. And, you know, they are very ruthless down at, at Watford. They don't hang around when it comes to, to head coaches. You couldn't say that Munoz has been given a long stretch in the Premier League, but there are a lot of issues with, with that team. And I think they're in big danger. Um, when it comes to relegation. Furpo then, getting better? 
Yes, definitely. I think he's, he's he's obviously struggled a little bit with the style of play, I think, and, and the defensive side of it so far. Whether or not Watford was a, a nice, easy way into it for, for him because, the, as you said, they didn't particularly offer much and there was never a section of the game where we were overwhelmed by them, whereas in most other games, even in the sections of the Newcastle game, it felt like a goal was probably coming. This, it did feel like a bit of a day off for the defence truthfully, which is maybe to do them a disservice for actually playing well. But yeah, I thought Furpush, he showed some far more encouraging signs. I think it is doing them a disservice slightly. When we look back at Furpush's performances, the thing that jumped out in several of the games was the fact that he was getting to grips and getting to grips a little slowly with the man-marking system and, and the way in which leads rotate and, and cover cover the opposition. And there were loads and loads of instances where, and it wasn't just purely down to him, you know, to take Salah's opening goal against Liverpool, for example, there's a, a problem there where, where Matip goes past um, Rodrigo in midfield and, and that opens the whole thing up. But there were several occasions where Firpo was effectively left marking nobody in the box because the man marking had got confused, there wasn't enough communication. In the first half against Watford, there were, there were three instances in pretty quick succession where he was very good at getting forward, but also keeping an eye on Saar and, and anticipating what Watford were going to try and do with him. A couple of occasions where Suzuka was trying to do what I just mentioned, which was get hold of turnover ball, play it out quickly and look for, for Watford's front four to break. And and Furpo was extremely good down that side at making sure that, that Saar wasn't able to get free, wasn't able to, to cause any real trouble in that area. I get the feeling with Furpo that it's coming. Um, and I go back to something I said previously, which is that I do think this is a pretty tough team to step into. You know, I think it's a tough coaching environment, a tough tactical remit to pick up overnight. I, I think there are, there are signs of promise there. Um, and that was his best performance yet. How does man marking get confused? Because the simple explanation is surely you just follow your man. But as soon as you lose somebody, or as soon as you lose sight of who you should be tracking, or as soon as somebody doesn't move if things open up, um, somebody doesn't anticipate overlaps or, or overloads, it can come apart very quickly. And the same is true at set pieces as well. Because leads do go man-to-man, if you lose somebody in the box, you're automatically in trouble if the corner's or if the corner's on point, if the corner drops nicely to whoever's free. Because you're not marking zonally, it means that you don't have people in a position to, to compensate for, for any errors that are made. So, for example, with um, with the goal that, that Salah scored, you had Firpo monitoring Salah, but then because Rodrigo fails to stop the run from deep, suddenly it all gets out of shape and Firpo doesn't know whether to go to Salah. Salah lays the ball off again, turns quickly into the box. At the same time, you've got Alexander-Arnold overlapping down the right, uh, ready to play the ball in. Everybody kind of loses their grip slightly and suddenly it's a, it's a bit of a mess. So... The long and short with my marking is it works perfectly if you do it properly and leads are usually very, very good at it. It is prone to coming apart if people, you know, if people's concentration isn't quite there. And, and as I say, I found that in a few of the instances, it wasn't just purely down to Furpo. There were situations where there was confusion across the defence, really. But on Saturday, it seemed to me that the understanding was far more fluent. Speaking of corners and losing, <laughs> losing grips, um, yes. what did you make of their disallowed goal? The MMA. There were a couple of Leeds fans who spoke to me afterwards. They were coming past the press box and they said to me, they thought that was a goal. They thought that was that Leeds were very, very lucky to get away with that. Looking at the, the challenge that Cooper's involved in, it's kind of six of one and half a dozen of another, but you could say that it is a foul on him and there is a lot of grappling going on. And I'm not surprised that, that the referee did blow for it. I think you also have to say that that probably didn't explain Melier dropping the ball Although it did deflect off Cooper, so so clearly 
you know, the, the two players going down made a difference. I thought they got away with one there personally. That has to be um, Melier's get out of jail free card for the season, no? Yeah, I think so. But equally, I think on balance, it probably was a foul. I think so. I think it was. I just don't know whether the foul really explains why Melier dropped the ball. And it's just how it's one of those where it's very hard to say who committed the first foul because, as you said, it appeared they were just wrestling with each other. It was probably whoever benefited from it was going to have the decision given against them. But I will say this, though. Right the way through this season, there have been chances that have gone begging. There have been players who have been injured. There's been strikes, red card. It hasn't felt like an awful lot has gone for Bielsa or for Leeds through this stretch. So if that is a little stroke of luck, then perhaps that was something else that, that was redeemed at the weekend and, and something that was deserved. Bottom line, they, they deserve to win the game. And we also should have had a penalty, I thought, as well, at, at 1-0. Very much so. I have no idea why that wasn't given. It looked in real time like a penalty. It looked in, on the replays like a penalty. The only explanation I can think they would give is that it was a little bit shoulder to shoulder, but I think that's stretching it. Stretching or it maybe uh, D- Dan James's shirt was in bright white. It might have dazzled them, maybe. And if it had been red, like a, a more musical like red, maybe they'd have given it. Well, your mate Emo tweeted on Saturday night, you know, what, what the VAR does. And when Leeds have a penalty award, and it was just this guy grinning the meme grin, at the laptop. Yeah, yeah. and you know, that that is a little bit how it feels. The only thing is, there was the VAR intervention when West Ham scored that disallowed goal. It, it does tend to swing back and forward. But it reminds me a little bit of a journalist he used to have on his, his Twitter profile, football writer, biased against your club. Yeah. And that's, that's kind of how it feels with VAR. Everybody is sitting thinking, well, most fan bases are sitting thinking, I hate this because it never gives but, us anything. But it's supposed to make refereeing better, but it's not. It's just made the problem different. Somebody asked this in a mailbag that, that I think will be online today if you're listening Friday, what I make of the refereeing standards. And I was saying in the Premier League, not not brilliant. And I think VAR has kind of helped in that it's it's helping referees to get certain individual decisions right. But I feel as if it, there have been occasions where referees have been a bit reticent or, or a bit lacking in conviction. And I do wonder if that's because they've got this safety net and because there is so much you know, there's so much scrutiny now on the replays that they're, they're almost scared of, of getting things wrong. And I, I've seen some simple calls as well that in real time look like they should have been dealt with and, and haven't been. And VR isn't an excuse for that. And I still maintain that Strike's challenge was not a red card. No. I think as well there's the perfect storm element to this as well in that they've they're they're letting more go. Uh, some refs are using it as a safety net, but then the safety net won't override the refs. It's reluctant to override them now because there's this clear and obvious clause. So there's kind of almost this disconnect between what's happening on the field and what the refs intend to do, what VAR's there to do. It just it, feels like a, a mess to me. There's less of a clear line as to what is a penalty now because... Before, if VAR looked at it and they were, they were almost trying to find things wrong last year, it felt like. Whereas this year, they're trying not to find things wrong. But it means that something that, like the Dan James one, if that's given as a penalty, VAR don't overturn it. But then VAR watch it and then... Don't give it. Don't give it. Yeah. So which so which is it? It's in, in different worlds, that is a penalty and isn't a penalty. And it's, it's the, I guess it's because it's... It, Schrodinger's it, penalty for it, the it, intellectuals among us. That's it, a good one. It dangles the promise of, of almost perfect decision making, doesn't it, VAR? But it's still essentially comes down to some bloke looking at it and going, well... Mm, I don't want to upset, well, I don't want to upset sure. my mate in the field and make him look daft by overriding what he's done. Absolutely. I always remember um, a manager talking to, to somebody at a function I was at and, and discussing refereeing and him saying, they, they were talking about cricket and the way in which cricket seems to be, as a rule, pretty much bang on when it comes to, to decisions. 
And this manager was saying, the thing about cricket is you only need to know the rules. You know, if you know the rules, then you really shouldn't make any mistakes when it comes to what you should be awarding, what you shouldn't be awarding. With football, you have so much interpretation and that's where it, it becomes difficult. VAR is a frustration when Craig Pawson clearly waves play on, then says it's a red card, and then VAR say, yeah, we can kill with that and you can carry on. And we never find out about the decision-making process no, either. The, There's the, no accountability. The, the written reasons for that, I thought, were really inadequate when it came to how Pawson had, had came to that decision. It was... Well, they circled the wagons, didn't they? Let's face well, it, it was, in my it opinion. Was, it was one line that said, I gave the red card. It was my decision, which is debatable, I would have said. What should have happened there is that Pawson waves play on, he comes back, VAR look at it and say to him, we think that's a red card, we think you should go and have an, another look. But, you know, that that didn't happen. Where I do have sympathy with them is that refereeing and officiating seems to bounce constantly between this is the policy, now it's no longer the policy. We've introduced this, you know, this new directive, we're abandoning this new directive. So handball was an issue for a long time, now not so much because they've they've changed that you know, last season they wanted more penalties. Everybody knew that it was it was an open secret. This season they seem to be moving more towards we don't we want you to let more go. We don't we don't want you to, to interfere so much. So if you're a referee, not really knowing where you stand, I, I can understand that. Anyway, let's not get caught yeah. up on this. It's we go around the houses on this all the time, don't we? And I think we're going to be talking about referees and VAR for it all the rest of eternity. But a one 0 hammering doesn't take away from the fact that Leeds absolutely destroyed Watford on the day. Yes, um, and Diego Urente with the goal. What does he bring to Leeds specifically? What does he bring to the defence, do you think? He's very, very composed. I think his his positioning is consistently good. He's quick enough so that rapid forwards can't easily get beyond him, easily causing problems. His long-range passing, when it clicks, and it didn't click so much on Saturday, but but when it does, is is absolutely exceptional. He can pick out passes from, from 40, 50 yards to feet. And it was interesting that beforehand... When I asked Bielsa about Creswell, and not specifically whether he would play, but how he was going to decide what to do with his defence when he had Strike coming back and Urenti coming back, and obviously Creswell playing well. And he said, my preference in, in this situation would be to put the pressure on the most experienced player. So, I, you know, I would rely on the player who I think is most experienced and most able to, to cope with this, which in the end was Urenti. And it, it was very much the right decision. In, in the same way that I thought it was the right decision to play Dan James ahead of Harrison because James' pace and pressing was a, a massive part of why the performance was so good on Saturday. You know he's quick, but in, in real time, the distance he can cover in the blink of an eye is is incredible. And, and that was that was hard work for Watford. They were never really able to settle because the press was was so good and, and so aggressive. But Llorente, I think, if he can stay fit for 20 games running, I think defensively Leeds will be good they'll be solid enough and this season will kind of look after itself I don't think the constant change in there helps at all and he is I think at 80 million pounds is a lot of money but I think when he plays particularly well he definitely looks like value for money at that price what do you make of Liam Cooper because he's one who's dividing opinion he always does um on the one hand you've got people saying that when you look at the stats he's absolutely rock solid and contributes to a lot of defensive work which he obviously will be in the centre half but on the other hand, that he's the weak link in that defence. It's strange. It feels like there's this big rush to get Cooper out of the team, which which I don't really follow. I think he's good enough. I think he's he's fine there. I think he's had some some good games. I thought both him and Urenti played extremely well on Saturday. I actually thought Cooper 
over 90 minutes had a pretty good game against West Ham as well. It was a, you know, there's a lot of pressure on the defence in that game when, when West Ham got going. I don't think it's a problem. I have to be honest. I, I do think further down the line, it's inevitable that there's going to be a change in the guard and not just with Cooper. You know, Ailing won't last forever. Dallas won't last forever. You, Cleek won't last forever. You will, at some stage, start to replace these players. But it almost feels to me like making an issue of a position which isn't a massive problem. If it was really glaring and you were looking at it constantly saying it's mistake after mistake and it's undermining the defence badly, then, yeah, it, it would be an issue. But I, I don't feel feel that it is. It's, it's a little bit like Tyler Roberts. I've, it's, we've become sort of bogged down in chat about Tyler Roberts when the issue with the team you know, from the start of the season has been much bigger than that. And that there is a debate to be had about the, the amount of players on the bench who can come on and make a, a serious impact. And it's a valid point of discussion. But it feels, both with Cooper and, and to an extent with, with Roberts as well, it feels like fixating on things which don't necessarily need to be fixated on. I feel sorry for Cooper because he's been a, a mainstay of the team for a lot of years now, but it feels like we've always had people trying to replace him. Like when Kyle Bartley came in and people were saying, oh, well, he's well, he's better than Cooper. Then Pontus came in, well, he's better than Cooper. Then Ben White, and now we've got Urente and Cock and even Creswell from the bits we've seen, people are saying, oh, well, he should obviously play ahead of mm. him. And it, it does feel a little bit like, well, he must have something there that whether or not it's leadership on the pitch or whether he is just really good in certain defensive things, but it's, there's enough there that for Bielsa to like him, so I guess I guess we should all probably probably yeah, just I, calm down. For I as think, exciting as some of the as some of the younger prospects are in defence, like Stroke and Creswell, they do both look exceptional for their age and everything. It's maybe we're trying to rush them too much. That's it. I was going to say. I mean, there are obvious weaknesses to his game. Like he sometimes is prone to getting you know losing his man in the box. It happens a fair bit. But on the other side of this, there there is the the leadership aspect to it, and and that team doesn't doesn't lead itself. No, it doesn't. Uh, does it? And I think there's also there's a rush to accelerate leads further forward because Radrazani's, you know, framed this in terms of we're going for Europe, there's the stadium expansion. There's almost this subconscious will, I think, among us all to be better, faster, and people pick out players like Roberts and Cooper as the lightning rods for that anxiety. I totally agree with that. And I think that's what it is. He quite easily gets sucked into this this sense of we could have better than him, we could have better than him, but you have two transfer windows a season, you have a limited budget you can't replace everybody at the moment where it feels like, you know, there might be better centre backs out there than than Liam Cooper. As a captain, I think he's been he's been excellent. As good as anybody really going you know, going back what, ten, fifteen years. And he's played pretty much from start to finish in one excellent championship season, one season that ended with a title, one Premier League season that ended with Leeds finishing ninth. It just doesn't feel like a problem to me. That's not to say as it I was saying previously that that further down the line there might not have to be a, a you know a change of personnel because that's kind of kind of inevitable but i don't feel at the moment that bombing cooper out the team would make a significant difference as we head into the uh, international break then we've seen calvin he's sitting out the england stuff with a calf injury yeah leeds seem pretty optimistic about this and are hopeful that he won't miss any games so i think the idea will be that he comes back he receives treatment he works next week and is, fingers crossed, fit for the, the Southampton game. I mean, he is somebody they can't afford to lose long term. Uh, so if if it transpires that he has an issue away with England, it does make sense from a club perspective to have him back and, and to look after him. But it's not a Ryan Giggs slight hamstring pull that he used to always get before Wales duty. I wonder where you were going then with that. <laughs> <laughs> of all the things that Ryan Giggs has been up well, to. Well, yes, when he was a footballer. 
I can't imagine Phillips would do that. He's so into England at the moment and he's a regular in the team and you don't want to compromise that. It's not a huge problem for him dropping out because unlike somebody like Patrick Bamford, he, he is now really established in the squad and in, in the starting lineup. And you know that if he's fit, he'll be in the in the next squad that's chosen for the, the November internationals. It's probably more of a concern for Southgate because it affects the, the midfield, although given who England are about to play, it's hardly a big deal. I'm going to say, how will they cope against Andorra without Indeed. the might of Calvin Phillips? Anyway, um, the other big headline from this international window, Rafinha finally got to join up with Brazil, which is a great honour for him and, and well-deserved as well. It's a year this week that we signed him. Um, just a word on him, I think, um, before we close out this section, because he's, he's he our best player. I think he's our best player, isn't he, along with Calvin? Bargain. Absolute bargain. You keep asking me questions that are in the mailbag because somebody asked exactly that. Is Rafinha our best player? But it's probably better and than the, the one about the Twitter moms, which we, we probably can't do. Well, we'll, we'll yeah, we'll, we will... Tread, safer territory tread carefully around that ground in, in a few minutes but I think Phillips is the player they miss most in an attacking sense and you could therefore say in terms of the team Rafinha is head and shoulders above just about everybody in every single every single game I mean an absolute bargain at £70 million I, I don't know what his value would be now but it's considerably higher than that and has just made such a good impact right from the right from the start. I, I remember writing about his debut against his Arsenal, or at least his, his full debut, because I watched him in that game and I thought everything he's doing looks good here. Every every time he gets on the ball and all of his movement, it just looks really instinctive and it's it's working for the team really well. So yeah, I mean, fantastic deal that one. And and as far as Brazil goes, you could tell on the basis that the, the that FIFA didn't impose a ban after the, the last saga. With the international break, that there was there was going to be some agreement over quarantining. Leeds say that he will be back, or they are confident that he'll be back and, and ready for the Southampton game, even though Brazil have a, a game sort of thirty six hours earlier. Be a bit of a scramble, I would imagine, um, but apparently he will be there. I like his his madness. He's got a slight madness about him. He's got a, a level of focus and sort of uh, is it desire? Is it hunger? Whatever word you want to put on this, however you want to label it. He's got something that I think just so many people don't have, just that single-minded kind of fury about football. He can run like Alioski. Uh, he's got that sort of engine, but he has so much more end product and, and so much more skill. As part of the analysis of football, we were having a look at Alioski's running stats, and, and I'd never dug into this before. I didn't expect and, a, a comparison between Rafinha and Alioski coming as an, as an answer I, to that question. Physically, <laughs> Ali, Alioski, when it came to fullbacks in the Premier League last season, Covered more distance per 90 than anybody, anybody at, at any club. He had more, I think, more individual sprints and covered a higher distance with his high intensity runs than any other fullback. And his, his running stats are absolutely phenomenal. I think there were issues on the technical side which explain why a lot of us thought that an upgrade in that position would, would be a good idea. Rafinha's got it all. He seems to be able to run and run. And, and I mean, he looked absolutely shattered at the end of the game on, on Saturday. But it never seems to, apart from, you know, he had the hip injury against West Ham, so couldn't physically carry on because of the pain. But when it comes to stamina, it doesn't seem as if it ever catches up with him during matches. He can always find a little bit extra. But what he has is that, just that that absolute flair and finesse that, that you love. Um, he, is, he is such a player. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? 
Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. Welcome to the Phil Hay Q&A then on the Phil Hay Show. Phil, we've got a bunch of questions sent in to you by fans. Listen, have you got fans? Listeners? No. No. Marvellous, though. <laughs> Marvellous. Looking forward to this. Right. We will not hesitate. We'll get straight into it then. And we will start off with a question from Connor. So in honour of October and upcoming Halloween, I wanted to know who is the scariest figure connected with Leeds United that Phil has ever encountered and which Leeds United horror story still gives him nightmares? Dennis Wise, in answer to the first question, uh, who would definitely not need a costume. And if he turned up to your house, wouldn't even need to say trick or treat. You'd just give him the bowl and say, look, have it all. Have it all. Leave me in peace, please. What, what, um, made, him, what made him scary, though? Because he's, he's only a, a wee fella. Just volatile, really. And you knew he could go off at, at any minute. It didn't always tend to be too rational about things. If there were, I always say this, but if there was going to be one manager who was going to off you out in the car park, it was probably probably going to be going to be Dennis. I did an amazing interview with him once. Actually, the only time I ever sat down with Wise, it was properly fascinating to find out a little bit about what was in his head. But I think that was in the sort of two three month period where we actually got on, and it never happened again. And Gus Poyet left that day as well. And the horror story then? Oh, it would have to be. It would have to be the six niller down at Hillsborough. Horrendous in in every single respect. Leeds were just about to get caught in the limbo between GFH and Chilino as well. Poor old Matt Smith. I, I should have told this story, but when I spoke to him about it, he was saying it was the only game that his mum and dad ever left early because they just couldn't cope with the abuse that was coming from from the away end so they they slipped out quietly and um and made their made their excuses but that was that was horrendous and that really that felt so much like scraping the barrel it was as if you you had it in your head that Leeds were one day going to get out of this and one day it was going to they were going to find Bielsa and it was going to be glorious or beautiful but then there was always that little voice in your head which said this is just going to go on forever isn't it this isn't it that's never ever going to solve itself, and that was one of those days that you drove home from thinking, "What you know? What next?" Speaking of Matt Smith, actually, I noticed this morning um, there was the the Bradford goal against Leeds in the League Cup, the game that Matt Smith scored, and that was a a fairly horrific night as well. It was the night Hockaday was was well, he wasn't sacked on the night, I don't think, but it was the the day before, and the whole stadium singing, "You're getting sacked in the morning," and for a, just for a horrible vitriolic kind of atmosphere, both from the Bradford fans towards Leeds, Leeds fans more towards their own team and management. The whole thing was just absolutely awful. That, toxic, was, toxic. that was grim. And, and Hockaday had, had been virtually sacked at least once already by that point, which probably leads us quite nicely into another question that's coming. Interesting to see how you tackle this one then, Phil, from Sean. <laughs> I mean, just how you're going to tiptoe through this one, I don't know. Hello, Phil and the boys. Which of the present squad would you say would be the most likely to break the international whaling ban? <laughs> Well, <laughs> just to ensure no lawsuits or libel letters None to of the them. post, this is this is purely a joke, and the the answer is of course none at all. Over the years, Jansen maybe. <laughs> Why? I don't know. He the, just, the, he, the Swedes. He just I mean, had I didn't a, eat Faroe Islands internationals. Cause... He just had a bit of a, a wild streak, but but then again, I, I, you <laughs> does, know, it, does that equate to him going out on a gunboat? No, I don't think it does. Does no. it? No, I'm going to no. say Liam Cooper, but it, it's by accident. <laughs> I, I think I think Liam Cooper is the least likely to um, to 
to flout the international whaling ban. And I could only see that happening if he mistakenly thought that a harpoon was a camera. Oh dear, right. On to something a little bit more serious and football related from Ian. Hi, Phil. Um, I'm just wondering in January, has there been any murmurings of incomings? Is there any chance that we will look to sign a striker, um, which I believe we kind of need to push on? Um, Just wondering what the situation is in that place. Thank you. I better not talk about midfielders because we were getting into trouble on Twitter last week for um, talking about central midfielders, which, to be honest, might be a fair point. We are kind of labouring that um, a little bit or have done in previous weeks. I don't think they will do much or anything in January if the season is in hand. I think if they feel like it's under control and the league position is decent, then they'll let it go by like they, they have previously. Two reasons for that. The first is that they don't see great value for money in January ever and also, there is just this nagging doubt constantly about what sort of impact a January signing is going to make under Bielsa, given the, the history with Jean-Kevin Augustine and, and the way in which, you know, well, yeah, quite, um, <laughs> which, which is exactly what Leeds are, are trying to say as is, is that case rumbles on. Uh, but yeah, I, I, whether, you know, the, the sort of introductory period under Bielsa of getting up to speed and everything else, it never really feel that it's a... It's a market in which they can get a massive advantage. But you're giving a politician's answer there, Phil, and I want to know what happens if we're 16th and two points off the drop. Well, I think that's when it when it potentially has to change, and and if they are in trouble or if it isn't going well, then they do need to they will need to seriously think about what they need to to get themselves through to the end of the season. They can't afford to take big risks by doing nothing in that window if if they feel like they need to. So that that would be the caveat to that. I mean, my personal preference would be if the season is going pretty well at that stage would be to hold off in January and to gear up for something much bigger at the end of this season um, in the one position which shall not be named but which a player would be helpful I, I would hope so with that in mind then question here from Tony just wondering what your thoughts are on this season and where you realistically think we're going to finish cheers Paul I mean what could possibly go wrong from you making a prediction oh dear um, I, I think bottom half but I do think that there will be six, seven, potentially eight teams worse than Leeds this season. It's not going to be as good as last year, and I think we've been saying that from the start. But it's starting to come now. It's starting to develop. I feel like the the best of the games against Newcastle, West Ham, Watford are far more like what we're we're used to seeing. So I think they they will be okay, and I still stand by my attitude as it was in the summer that a steady second season is no bad thing. Question now from Nathaniel. What do we think of Christopher Clarsen since joining Leeds? Is he able to step up if uh, Melier was to be injured as second choice goalkeeper, or are we? Do we think he's got that ability, or does he still need time? And we're just praying that Melier doesn't get injured. There is a good question there. What does happen if uh, Melier gets injured? Well, he's going to have to step up. I mean, there is. There's um, Van der Hoeville, obviously, but you know, no more experience than in Klassen, and and less so really because Klassen is coming on on the back of quite a few performances for Valerenga, quite a few games for them over in Norway. Um, the the scouting department thought a lot of Klassen. Uh, they were in touch about him a couple of years before they actually signed him, and as soon as Casilla went to to Elche, he was the goalkeeper they they went after, paid you know round about one and a half million pounds for him. Um, think of him as a really, really big prospect, um, much as they, they did about Melier when he came over from from Lorient. From what I've seen of him so far, he, he looks like a decent keeper. Whether he would be ready for the Premier League is really impossible to say. I mean, I, I, I have genuinely no idea, but I suspect that, that he would be 
okay as a as an understudy for Millie on the basis that he has had senior football over in Norway and and there's clearly a lot to to like about him. But yeah, I mean, ideally, Millie stays fit from start to finish. Cameron's question now then. Phil, you've already told us how much you pay for a kebab, what makes a pillow and a cushion different. But what I want to know is, would you rather go with out no Wi-Fi or have Alan Brazil and Misa away from you at all times? Let me know. Cheers. Bye. The big question's answered on the Phil Hay Show. Would you rather be without Wi-Fi? Presumably that's a permanent thing. Or would you rather have Alan Brazil permanently one metre away from you? I do remember the kebab answer. I don't remember us debating cushions versus pillows, but no, we I could certainly even... do that next week if we're short of something for, for section two. It depends on circumstances, and I don't want to, to give another politician's answer here, but if I'm inside Ellen Road, given how awful the 4G is as soon as anybody gets near the ground, then I would have to have Alan Brazil within one metre of me at all times rather than forgo Wi-Fi because the afternoon would be a complete disaster. But generally, despite how addicted I am to my phone and you get those awful weekly reports on your iPhone every Monday saying, this is how much time you spent on your screen in the past week. <laughs> this is how bad a human you are. <laughs> it's like, hate this from my wife, please. Um, and What show's that at the minute? I can't remember the last one was, but it was something seriously embarrassing. Do you know what mine yeah. is? Go on. It's about eight and a half hours a day. My, <laughs> yeah, my, my, phone, my phone doesn't have this and I'm, I'm fairly pleased. Yeah, screen time. Is, when you've got kids, you've nothing bad to do, have you? They're just there. You've got, you've got to be sort of You've got to be sort of watching them, haven't you, Jim? Yeah, that's so one, one eye on the phone, one eye on the fighting that's going on in the, <laughs> in the corner. But mine is definitely an excess of eight hours. Yeah, oh, good. Yeah, that makes definitely. me feel a bit better. Uh, so, but I think... Football is run by phones, though, isn't it? The whole industry. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Absolutely. It seems to be run by WhatsApp more than anything. But I could live without WhatsApp if I was going to have Alan Brazil on a one-metre rope behind me for the rest of my life. <laughs> There's 5G at Ellen Road now if you're on the right network. I've got that. Still doesn't work at half time, no, by the still, way. It's still on 4G. Well, if it doesn't work, there's no point. <laughs> uh, God bless him. Back to Connor then. Different Connor this time with a question for you, Phil. Hi, Phil. I'm currently living in Nottingham. And my current barber in Nottingham used to cut the hair of Casper Sloth when he was at Notts County. And my barber told me, he knew that I was a Leeds fan, and he told me a story that Casper Sloth once told him that under Celino in one game at halftime, Celino came down to the dressing room and demanded three substitutions at halftime. I was wondering if you knew if this story is true or what game this story occurred in. Cheers. I mean, first, can we address Connor's use of Celino there? Celino, yes. Adjudication panel says no. That's a claim to fame, isn't it? I used to cut Casper Sloss here in Nottingham. I wonder how many people he's, he's managed to say that to and it, probably the first person who's gone, oh, no, he is. Everyone else would be like, <laughs> Nice one, mate. <laughs> I can't vouch for that story because I was never told that myself. It falls into the list of things that could conceivably have happened during the Chilino era, definitely. I mean, I, I've told the story of Chilino phoning at midnight, one o'clock in the morning <laughs> to see how sick he was of Hockey Day after about three games. Did you, did you take um, that call? Obviously, you must have done because yeah, you knew what he wanted. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I didn't really know what to do with it. I wasn't. No, I wasn't. So, so talk us through that. Where were you? What were you doing at the time? I was at home. I got home. It was after the Brighton game midweek. They lost 2-0. Sammy Hippier was in charge of Brighton at the time. And Leeds had been pretty meh, really. You know, Brighton had probably deserved to win that game. And it was just a random phone call talking about how, how tired he was of Hockaday. Even though Hockaday had been there for like three games or, or something like that. Which it was telegraphing the fact that Hockaday was going to go pretty soon. But it was hard to know 
what to do with the phone call. You're supposed to be writing about this. You're supposed to be keeping it to yourself. You never could tell with Chilino. And to be quite honest, virtually nothing with Chilino was off the record. He just said what, what <laughs> you know, what whatever was um, was in his head. Uh, so I know obviously there was that famous occasion as well where he went down to the kitchen um, to cook the tomato pasta before the game against Bournemouth, which leads one. And there was the great story of them walking in with the bowls of pasta and one of the players saying, where's my fucking chicken? <laughs> I, don't, I don't want this. Um, so it might have happened. It, it might have happened. Who wanted um, the chicken out of interest? Do you know? Um, I don't think I should say, but... Um, I, I, uh, Come on. I, I It could have happened, but I can't say that it did. I was trying to look through and see the game it could have been. There was a... a a 2-0 defeat at Brighton later that season where Sloth himself was taken off uh, 59 minutes along with Mowat and uh, Morrison. They were both taken off shortly after halftime. So right. I, wonder if, I wonder if maybe that was, was, that was the a, game. That was a fun night, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Lovely midweek drive home after that. Are, are you like me in that, I was saying this on our podcast um, earlier in the week, I refer to it all as like the before times now. Everything prior to 2018. Yeah, I think so. It feels a little bit like that. Some of it you can't believe went on, really. As I say that there were spells where you felt like you were going to be trapped in it forever. And it was over here, you had people saying, Leeds are a huge club and it'll be great when they get back to the Premier League and the Premier League will be so much better when Leeds get, get into the division. And then over here, you had all of us saying, yeah, but it's just never going to happen, is it? You know, <laughs> How is it going to happen given the, the circumstances? Which is why the last three years have been such a dream. Yeah. Okay, on to a question now then from Scott and you can't give the same answer to the question you gave before. Okay. Who, of all the managers that we've ever had while you've been uh, sort of reporting others, have you disliked the most? So I'm not allowed to say Dennis Wise. I mean, you can, but we will start to pressure on other matters. Yeah, um, I think Wise probably tops the list, and I think the feeling was was very much mutual. I never got on very well with Warnock, or at least not latterly, not in the second half of the season where where he went. I, I just couldn't see it, really. I didn't see much in the way of uh, it wasn't a squad that were going to get promoted but I think it was a squad that were playing below the level they should have been playing at and and there was very little coming in the way of, of outstanding football most of those that I've got to know in in any proper sense I've I've got on with to be honest yeah not been a huge issue but yeah it would have to be wise why didn't he like you well if you remember he came in in the middle of the season where they got relegated from the championship and also then the summer of administration where, and I know people think that the Evening Post weren't critical enough of Bates, and to be quite honest, I'd agree, and that applies to me as well. But we were very critical of Bates through that summer and, and also through the back end of the, the season where the, where the club went down. We were banned twice. And Wise, I think, took that pretty personally. I mean, he took the criticism of himself very personally, which I understand, but also the criticism of Bates because in that period, him and Bates were, were very, very close. And it's probably fair to say that he just didn't like the media very much um, at all. I mean, he went to Newcastle and from what I've been told up there, he, he was a director up there, I think director of football, did absolutely nothing with the press ever, never spoke to them once. They didn't know what he was doing really or, or what his, his remit was. I think he was just happier out of that bubble. Other than Bates, who did Wise like? Because he seems to be one of those people who everywhere he's gone, he's had fairly significant fallings out with people. I will say, I mean, you know, Bates was pretty unhappy when he, he left and... and hot-footed it up to, to Newcastle, although I understood at the time that it made a lot more sense for Wise's personal 
situation. His, his family was still down in London and, and hadn't moved up to Leeds and he was seeing very, very little of them at the time. So the move to Newcastle made perfect uh, sense. Yeah, well, well, he was working out of an office in London, he wasn't was, he? was, you see. So he was able to fly in and out of, of Newcastle and it was kind of, you know, it was less of a requirement to be there all hours. He loved Poye, obviously, um, although he was frustrated by, by Poye going down to Spurs when he did. In actual fact, you'll find plenty of players who liked him. Beckford being one of them. Beckford always said that Wise was the manager who said to him, I, I honestly believe in you and I think you I think you can be very good for us. And before the season, the, the 07-08 season, the minus 15 year, he said to Beckford, look, I'm going to play you in candle and I'm going to get criticised for it and people are going to moan because I can tell that people don't rate you and don't like you, supporters. But I don't give a fuck because I'm the manager and I'll do what I like. And mm. that was wise. And and in those circumstances, it, it worked really well. And, and there were players who came in in that minus 15 moment, which was obviously a real mess. And, and you know, at a time where a lot of players would not have wanted to sign for the club. And he was he was good to them. They, they did enjoy working with him. I've spoken to plenty of players, plenty of players who didn't like him, but I've spoken to plenty who did like him as well. Presumably well, Beckford didn't have the, the balls to say, no, Dennis, I think people don't like and don't rate you. <laughs> which is but, the actual truth but of course what happened that season was that suddenly it all clicked and they had that long long run unbeaten run that long winning run to start with they shot right up the league and put themselves bang in contention for, for a playoff place and it was it was actually quite an amazing period that especially after the, the utter misery of the relegation season and the fact that they'd been deducted 15 points and you assumed that that season was just a complete write off you know there was very little chance of them of them getting it together it was a pretty pretty fascinating period. What about Bates? What was, what was he like to deal with? Did you have a decent relationship with him or was it spiky? It was spiky. No, it was always, always spiky. Um, difficult to deal with, ma- mainly because Bates never thought he was wrong. When he took a view on something, that was his view and, and he would stick to it. And even if you tried to argue him round or even if you tried to argue the toss over things that you'd, you'd written, if he wasn't having it, he just wasn't having it. And that was the same thing. You know, every now and again, you'd get calls on the, the Evening Post sports desk saying, uh, from his secretary saying, Chairman wants to speak to you. And you're thinking, oh, oh good. Oh, <laughs> joy. Here we go. So, no, it was it was pretty fractious, yeah. Did you, uh, did you get any letters from Carter Rook? No, although... Who are a firm the, of solicitors, I should uh, say. The Evening Post did at one stage. I, I do remember that, but no, not me personally. Right, and we'll finish on a football one. Oh, why not? We've, we've dealt with whaling. Now let's do this on football from Jack. Phil, with a few of our centre-backs coming back from injury and considering a few of our newer signings were signed for their versatility, what are your thoughts on pushing Calvin into an eight position like he sometimes does for England and moving Strauch or Robin uh, when he's back into the CDM position to kind of support our current midfield problems? Thanks, guys. Cheers. No, no, <laughs> no. <laughs> um, that Borderline on a par with putting Melier up front. I mean, not really, because Phillips was actually really good in that position for England, but he has to be there for Leeds. You've got to have him in that position. There is still nobody, I think, in the squad at Leeds who is even close to touching what he does um, in that that number four role. So, no, keep him there, sign somebody else. Jobs are good in. And just to reiterate, I don't actually think Janssen would have flouted the international <laughs> whaling ban. He's, 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 he's a good guy, is Pontus. Whatever's been said about however many deep, harpoons he owns, whatever's been said about him, um, deep down, good guy who's doing extremely well at Brentford. Uh, just regards to um, not the whaling ban, Phillips. He's been likened with his like sort of rangy long passing to a quarterback. I think he's as important to Leeds United as a quarterback is to an NFL team. 
you'll have read quite often over the years, you know, that phrase being used, Phillips quarterback in the team. And, and it is like that. It's it's like he, you know, the ball comes to him and he starts to pick the difficult passes going going forward. I mean, the centre-backs in Bielsa's team do a bit of that as well. And we were talking about Yorente, you know, his, his long-range distribution, how good it is. And Cooper very often looks for diagonals to the wing, left to right, um, to, to open things up. But that's how it is with Phillips. It is kind of like total control in that area. Tom Brady style. I don't know if that's a good, good comparison. I mean, I know nothing about NFL, so let's let's not get too. I think too, Tom Brady's he's a good he's this. a good NFLer, is Tom Brady? I think. I think a good NFLer. Yeah, that's what they call him. Slightly, isn't it? slightly um, gridironing. It's good at yeah, gridironing, isn't yeah. it? Slight, slightly underestimating him. But yeah, that's that's the thing. It's you need in this system where you have one midfielder sitting between defensive line, of, uh, midfield line of four, and defensive line of four. You need total control there, and that is what. Phillips brings. So in terms of moving him to eight, no, don't do it, kids. Well, given the chats about whaling and so on, should we do this again in the next international break? Yes, why not? Why not? It's been fun. (laughs) Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We'll preview Southampton, the proper Premier League game, next week. In the meantime, let's look back on the game at Southampton in 2005 while we await that one. Uh, November 2005, 4-3. Only one of us was there for this one. Phil, you weren't quite covering leads for the YEP just yet. Nope. I uh, was probably at home or working, doing something sensible. Michael, you were there. I was drunk, is what I was. So (laughs) my memories of it are not... I'm, if you're expecting a, a forensic analysis of the, the tactical patterns of the game and how it played out and how how we turned it around, um, yeah, I'm not I'm not entirely sure you're going to get that. I had a really nice day. I do remember that. Yeah. Do, do you remember the goals flying in though? I do. Yeah, and it, it it was one of those weird ones because it wasn't it wasn't a game where you expect it to happen. I've been at games with comebacks where you can sort of sense it brewing and there's something in the performance, like the Preston game. I saw it was the end of eleven years since that the other day, and that was a game where Leeds were were falling up. But everyone was still a bit. Mm, this could this could flip and like if going back further, do you remember the four, four three derby game? Yeah, I was just thinking that ninety seven. Yeah, when that yeah. that was one where we actually hadn't played badly. They'd got a few goals. Whereas this one, we were just getting absolutely taken apart. And for pretty much until the moment we scored our first goal, we were getting taken apart. Is this the game where you ended up with injuries? Yeah, there were a lot of shin. Um, I, I I think I ended up with like a dent in my shin that didn't mm. that stayed for quite a while. I'm not sure if it was. I'm not sure if it was a. Pro- because it didn't really, um, normally you're quite often accustomed to getting bruises and stuff at, from chairs. This one just left a dent, which didn't really bruise, it just really hurt. <laughs> so I've probably should, probably got a broken leg still to this day. Should have had that checked out. But it, I mean, it, it was fine and I, yeah, I managed to walk back to the station. There's a bait story uh, from this, following on from the, the previous section. Leeds got into a bit of a rut of form 
around this point. I think they'd gone four league games without a win and obviously everything was, was kind of weighted on reaching the playoffs and, and promotion. You know, By their standards, they'd, they'd actually spent a bit of money on Creswell and Blake and, and Healy and, and others. There had been a, a bit of expenditure and, and the form was, was just wavering slightly. So Bates actually left with his wife. I think his wife was there, but Bates was certainly there. He left halfway through the game. He left at half time with Leeds 3-0 down. And one of the nationals run ran a story um, either on the Sunday or the Monday saying Bates storms out of um, St Mary's after, you know, horror first half from Leeds. The implication being that he was furious with Blackwell and that Blackwell's coat might be on a shaky peg. As it turned out, Bates just had a plane to catch back to, to Monaco. And you were mentioning legal letters a little while ago. Uh, one of those dropped at uh, the aforementioned newspaper <laughs> and a, a settlement settlement was reached. But he managed to miss this second half fight back because he was he was gone when when it all kicked off. What struck me most about the game and looking particularly at the lineups was the fact that at half time Harry Redknapp made three substitutions and I don't think Chilino was in his dressing room for that. <laughs> but he took off Lundekwam, he took off the mighty Dennis Wise, who was part of their lineup, and he took off Marion Pahars as well, which tells you that after Nigel Quasi scored the penalty, the third Southampton goal, right on right before half time. Redknapp obviously thought the game was won, resting some legs, mixing it up a little bit, you know, job done, on on we go. Um, Three subs at half-time is, is a fairly outrageous move. You'd make two at a push, wouldn't you? And then keep one in reserve just in case. I think even at 3-0, you would feel as if the game was probably over. But you would know that there was always that chance that if it became a little bit shaky, you know, if Leeds were to score the next goal and everybody got a little bit tight... Those scenarios are sometimes the worst because the lead is so big that it gets into the players' heads about how it's going to look if they make a mess of this and, and it all goes wrong. And and I can't help feeling that Dennis Wise, bless him, would have been the perfect player to have helped see out that 3-0 win. I think if you'd left him in midfield, it's probably fairly unlikely that Leeds would have scored four goals in the last 90 minutes. But as it was, that kind of set things up for a, a bonkers second half. Well, we'll get we'll get to the goals in a second, but it's worth mentioning the Leeds lineup for that day. Some names for you to uh, to cheer as we read them out: Sullivan, Kelly, Butler, Kilgallen, Harding, Richardson, replaced by David Healy at sixty-seven minutes. Maybe he was the architect of this because all the goals came after that. Derry, Miller, Lewis, Hulse, and Blake with Pugh, Bennett, Walton, and Douglas not used on the bench. Yeah, Liam Miller no longer with us, sadly, gone at a, a very very young age, and and that is definitely the abiding memory of him at Leeds. That stroked finish from inside the box that you just knew was going to go in because suddenly everything was was going for Leeds. And I always loved the reaction of Redknapp afterwards because he couldn't tell whether he was going to lose it completely and start smashing the dressing room up. And, and he just said, it wasn't as if Southampton were getting completely hammered in the second half. It wasn't as if Leeds were all over him. It just felt that every time Leeds went forward, they were scoring and he didn't feel like he could put his finger on what on earth had gone wrong, apart from to say it just is one of those days that people will still be talking about in 2021. Um, but I do think if you look at those substitutions he made, there's a there's a bad error there. Yeah, and well, ours, 67 minutes, Healy comes on for Richardson, and then we score 71, 77, 84 and 86. So four goals in basically 15 or 16 minutes. How was it for you, Michael? <laughs> It was loud, I remember. <laughs> it's just it's just a pace of goals that you can't fully keep up with. Like it's, you've barely finished celebrating. Well, in fact, I think, to be honest, the first one goes in and it's more of a, way. Way, okay, well, it's one back. We've not been in this game. We're absolutely not going to turn it around. Then the second one goes in, it starts building. Then obviously there's the, 
there's the penalty and it's, that's you know you've got to be out of the game at that point. And then I think I think the commentary on it says Leeds wouldn't dare win it, would they? Because I've, I've watched it a few times and it's that's when um, when Miller obviously slots in. I will say that Bates was not the only person who missed the second half of this. There were plenty of Leeds fans who did make an exit for the pub because they were they did as as I would have done as well. In truth, look at the first half and go, "There's nothing in this. If anything, it's going to be five. And it has. I think it's taught me a, a harsh lesson about leaving games early as well. Now I will I will sit there while Watford put six past us, thinking. <laughs> Just in case, yeah. but there is that there is genuinely that that one in a million thing that does happen every now and then, isn't it? That's worth just sitting in there just in case. Um, and and this is, but this this for me is like I, I went to that derby four three in in nineteen ninety seven, and while the winning goal I think it did come quite late, didn't it? We started scoring quite early mm-hmm. in, in the first half, whereas this they're three 0 up right on the stroke of half time, and then we start scoring. I'd say seventy one minutes the, the comeback started. I also like just from a purely details point of view that all the goals went in the one net in front of the Leeds fans, all seven of them. We had some fantastic picks in the evening post on the the Monday afterwards. Brilliant splash on the back page, which was just the limbs everywhere in in the away end. I love as well the thought of what it must have been like that moment where Healy scores the third goal, the penalty, and just knowing that Southampton have completely gone and thinking there's still, you know, still six minutes we to go. We can win this. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you know that the, the momentum has become like a tidal wave and Southampton are bottling it on a, a grand a grand scale and that there might be might be a winning goal. You don't get many of them. Even if you follow football for like 30, 40 years, you get late winners and you get, you know, dramatic games and so on, but you don't get many like that where from a position where you seem completely beaten to to digging it out particularly in the last 19 minutes. It wasn't as if, the, like you said about the Derby game, it wasn't as if the goals were spread out over a wide period. They, they almost started scoring at the very point where you'd have thought, well, it's too late in the game to get anything from this. And you're right as well. Like Football, it ebbs and flows, doesn't it? Like You look back at the 4-3 game at Anfield to start the Premier League season last season, and it was back and forth, trading blows uh, kind of game. You know, Their superiority told in the end, they got a lucky penalty, etc., etc. But it was always a fairly close game Whereas this one, it was all swinging completely one way for one half. And then, like I said, it's that tidal wave. It's just that sudden, complete reversal of fortune. And I think, that is that why we love football? Because of stuff like that? That it can just very occasionally, one in 10,000 games, you get something like this. Well, I think because a lot of the time, that is purely in the head, isn't it? Like Whatever you're doing tactically and whatever you're doing with the team and however you're trying to mix it up. I mean, Blackwell made no changes at all at, at half time, and, and basically said afterwards, that team has done pretty well for us so far, you know, so I kind of felt like it was on them to to dig us out of this. But it is a totally psychological thing where you become tense and you become anxious and it becomes worse and worse for Southampton's players because they know that the game should be won and, and it should be done and dusted. I saw a little bit of that in Arsenal last season, the 4-2 defeat down at the Emirates, that once it went 4-2, suddenly Arsenal were thinking to themselves, I can't believe this isn't over. Like, I can't believe this team are still coming at us and, and might potentially nick something from this and Leeds didn't but you still got that feeling of tightness and anxiety which is which is absolutely wonderful when it's the opposition who are looking like that and is utterly utterly dreadful when it's your own team of the four goals I I know Miller's was the one that obviously took the headlines and it's the one that the photographs exist of but I think Robbie Blake's was possibly the best finish that little slot that kind of half turn finish that Blake was really really good at he was a very good player with Blake I feel like we probably didn't use him properly in fact when you look back at all of that side I think it I think David Healy would probably point to not being used properly as well because there was yeah there was a fair bit of talent in there and it was just we were overcrowded in central positions weren't we so it ended up with Blake and and Healy stuck out on wings where they, they couldn't necessarily influence the game as much as they, they could elsewhere 
There were times as well where Blackwell was playing one up front, which meant that you were trying to accommodate, you know, the very, very <laughs> good forward line into into not um, an awful lot of space. I also feel like a, a fight back like this is inevitably started always, and this I reckon this is scientific as well, by a header from a corner. Yeah. But the, what looks like a consolation goal, which I think was Paul Butler's. Was yeah, that yeah, not yeah, how yeah. The, the first yeah. goal went in? Corner comes in, somebody nods it in. In fact, didn't Gerard do that in the, the, the miracle in Istanbul? Wasn't this a header from a corner? Or oh, that would have, have been the first time it ever happened. Well, yes, <laughs> pro- probably, fans. probably. Um, Such a special goal. That, that I think, if um, if you three 0 down, the first goal always has to be header from a set piece. What looks like just a bit of a, you know, everybody jogs back to the halfway line, going, oh well, you know, there's a goal. Paul you- Butler as well had had to face um, a. Uh, spring-heeled Theo Walcott that day as well so he'd not had an easy afternoon of it against he was about 16 at the time as well wasn't he but just absolutely ridiculous pace past him can you remember like going into the pub afterwards and bumping into people who'd missed the entire turnaround can you remember that I, did, I didn't I didn't come across anyone but there were I remember being under the in the concourse at half time and there were people there were people leaving I mean presumably they had, had already made their way back more into the the city centre pubs are onto a train by the time I, everyone was spilling out. But um, now I think it's one of those you probably wouldn't admit to leaving either. If you'd you'd keep it quiet, if you'd walked out of, if you'd travelled all the way to Southampton to watch forty five minutes of a spanking to then leave during what was actually the best twenty minutes of the well, of probably of the decade. Truthfully, <laughs> given given what happened before and after it, can you remember what you did afterwards? I was living down in in Oxford at the time, so I was on a train back there within because I'd, I'd pre booked one. I think money saving as always. So I think I, I remember being on a train back with. Uh, with quite a few of the Leeds fans, and it was just, it was still kind of bouncing. It bubbles, doesn't it? It really doesn't. It was one of those nights where you don't want to, you almost don't want to go to bed because you're like, you've had, you've had such a, a, a good day with it. You're just like, well, let's just, let's just try and stay out as long, as long as possible. Not good for the health of the old four threes, though. No, I, they don't come along very often, though, do they? You don't, I'm, I'm trying to think of the last time we had anything comparable. I mean, it was the Blackburn 3-2 where we, the, we the, got the two late, yeah, very late the, goals. Yeah, the late goals, but that was kind of back and forward. Um, Villa, I mean, in some, ways, Villa, was in some ways, Villa was a bit more like that in that, you know, 2-0 down at half time and it played all right, but not not really been in the game as you expected Leeds to be. Um, so that was that was kind of comparable, but not nothing quite like that sort of completely dead and buried feel. And just to return to a theme we touched on in the Q&A, what was Blackwell like? Blackwell, I, I got on okay with Blackwell. I, I think the, it seemed to me that there was always a sense with Blackwell that he wasn't particularly well respected or as much as he should have been by other coaches in the game. I think that was his view, you know, that he felt that he deserved the job. He felt he was good in the job. I think, I mean, I, I've spoken to people who covered that season, journalists who covered the season, who say there isn't that much of it that they remember really because it's not like the Bielsa era where you could go through each season and pick out performance after performance and uh, loads of loads of sparkling games it, it kind of kind of wasn't like that the problem for Blackwell was the the period in which his relationship with, um, with Bates broke down completely you know and, and at that point there was only one way that that was that was going to finish I think Leeds have had better managers than Blackwell but it has to be said he, he was very very close to getting them up well that wraps it up for this week then we will revisit Southampton and uh, and St Mary's next week when we preview the game properly uh, say hi at the Phil Hay Show on Twitter and look for us on the Athletic UK YouTube channel as well. And you can subscribe to The Athletic with a 33% discount at theathletic.com forward slash leads pod. And we will return next week. We'll speak to you then. The Phil Hay Show.